0: Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. I'm Marianne, if we haven't met. I'm so glad to have the opportunity to bring you the word of God this morning. Um, we're in a series, as you might know, called What the Son of God Said. And so far, we've been looking at Jesus for we've been looking particularly at Jesus's words to glean greater understanding about key theological subjects. And so if you've been following with us this summer, you know that so far we've talked about what the Son of God says about the Word of God, what the Son of God says about the Church of God, and this morning we're continuing talking about what the Son of God says about the Kingdom of God. So last week, um, well, one thing we think about, last week Eric introduced this topic to us and we, we noted that the phrase Kingdom of God actually occurs over 80 times in Scripture, And last week, Eric gave us a very helpful definition, a very good working definition that we'll start with this morning, and that is that the kingdom is God's reign through God's people in God's place. Now, God's reign, that means that God is king. He is supreme, Lord, sovereign God over all creation. He is the creator and the sustainer of life, and he is actively intervening in our broken world with his love and grace. You know, he is at work to redeem, to buy back that which has been marred by sin and death. And this has been made possible, of course, by the sacrificial death and the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Now, who are God's people? We talked about this last week. We know that God not only reigns over his creatures, he also reigns through his people. Through a relationship with Jesus Christ, people are saved from death, from bondage, from the power of sin, and they're saved to life, to eternal life, to freedom, to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So literally, we are rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. God's people have a new life in Christ, a new identity in him, and a new kingdom domain. Now, what is God's place? We talked about this last week. We know that God came to earth through the person of Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus came into this world, he brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. He was born to a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless, spirit-filled life, fully God and fully man. And at the time that he came, the Jews were considered to be God's chosen people, and they were expecting him. They were expecting a Messiah. They believed in God's promise to bring a Savior Messiah into the world, but they expected a king that was going to come and free them from Roman oppression, someone who was going to come and take care of all their worldly problems. But rather than a throne of political power, Jesus was nailed to a throne of salvation power on the cross. So their hopes were shattered when Jesus didn't take his expected place as reigning king over all the earth at his first coming. Instead, God established his reign in the heart of each person who received Christ as Lord and Savior. And even still to this day, God is working here and now. He is building his kingdom through his people in this generation. We're living in the age of the church, so this is the age right now where we are living that is between his first coming and his second coming. But one day, Scripture tells us that God is, Jesus is going to come back, and he is going to reign as visible Lord over the whole planet. So the kingdom of God was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming, but it actually won't be consummated until Jesus' second coming. So it's begun, it's here, it's happening, it's growing, it's expanding, but it's not complete until it reaches its fullness when Jesus comes again in glory. So the kingdom, God's reign through God's people in God's place. Now Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God during his earthly ministry. And at the time when he was talking about the kingdom of God, people were really confused. What he said didn't actually align with their expectations, and often then he spoke in parables about the kingdom, which just made things more mysterious and more confusing than ever. So today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to be in search of four answers to four key questions. Here's what we're going to look for, and if you love to take notes, you've got four P words to prompt each one of these questions. So first is parables. Why does Jesus speak in parables about the kingdom of God? Before we can examine what Jesus actually said about the kingdom, we have to understand why didn't he just speak plainly? Why did he instead hide truth about the kingdom in these parables? It's so perplexing. And the second thing is preparation. How can the listener prepare his or her heart to actually really understand what Jesus had to say about the kingdom? Why is it? that the condition of our hearts is actually more important to understanding than the functionality of our ears or our eyes. The third is power. What kingdom power was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming? In other words, why does the mustard seed, what does the mustard seed and the yeast, the parables that we're going to look at today, what do they tell us about the kingdom's true impact in the world? And the fourth is prize. Why is the kingdom the greatest prize of our lives? Why does Jesus talk about the kingdom in terms of a buried treasure or a pearl of great value that is more valuable than anything else on this earth? So if we want to understand what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of God, we have to know that God reveals secrets about the kingdom to those who have open hearts. So I think before we dig in, Let's pray that our hearts would be open to hear from the Lord this morning. Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that these are mysteries that are hard for us to understand. And we understand that you have hidden truth inside these parables, truth that is accessible to us, that is enlightening to us. If we have hearts that are open to perceive what you're saying, to listen to your spirit, And Lord, as we've gathered this morning, we come ready and wanting to hear from you. Oh Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would clear our minds and open our hearts and attune our spirits to listen to you. May we leave this time together, not only understanding the things you want to say to us, but also inspired to walk more closely with you and to follow you. With more fervor in our lives. And so I ask that you'd come and meet us now in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You're gonna to want to open your Bible. We're gonna be in Matthew 13. And um, in this chapter that we're looking at, Jesus actually takes on a whole new form of teaching. So rather than explaining to his listeners things in in plain language, he makes a shift and he begins to talk to his listeners in these parables. So can you imagine how confusing it must have been for the disciples as they are listening to Jesus explain these profound mysteries about the kingdom in stories that to them sounded like fables or allegories or riddles? Let's look at Matthew 13, starting at verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. This is in Galilee. Such large crowds gathered around him, and he got, that he got into a boat, and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was gathering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And the disciples came to him and they said, why do you speak to the people in parables? Okay, what is a parable? The word parable actually means to cast alongside. It's a a story or a comparison that's put alongside something else to make a lesson clear. Now parables aren't fables because fables involve details that don't pertain to real life. So if you've heard of Aesop's Fables, that's a fable about animals that talk. That's not a real life thing. And I I have four dogs in my home. I've welcomed my mom into my home to live with me. And I now have an extra dog. And I can tell you, they do communicate, but not with audible human words. Parables are not allegories. Because in an allegory, every detail has some meaning or is making some connection. So we think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Or we think of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where there's a lot of symbolism between every detail. It has some additional meaning. But parables are real-life stories that contain one or two basic truths. Not every detail has a significant meaning. So we don't want to overanalyze parables. We don't want to try to create symbolism out of every single detail. What we want to do is we want to look for the most obvious understanding because the point of a parable is to use a familiar situation to explain an unfamiliar truth. So why did Jesus switch to parables when he began teaching about the kingdom of God? Why would he do that? It's because at this point in his ministry, the crowds of people had largely rejected him. Though people, yes, they wanted to see his miracles. They wanted to experience his healing, but they didn't want to accept the fact that he was the Messiah, that he was the king. They were reluctant because he didn't come and conquer their enemies like they were expecting. He didn't establish his reign over Israel like they were wanting. They wanted him to be their political king. The ways in which he was entering into their world was so upside down to what they were really expecting and so they were confused, and even the religious leaders at this point had determined that they were going to kill him. So Jesus explains to his disciples that he's using parables in order to, re- to reveal secrets to some, but to conceal truth from others. Verse 11, Jesus said, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, disciples, but not to them, the crowds, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. It's hard to imagine hanging out with Jesus and not seeing or hearing or recognizing his divine power or his Holy Spirit's Fulfillment. It'd be so hard to imagine being in the presence of Jesus and not discerning. This man is not unlike anyone else. He has a power upon him. He has a spirit upon him. How could a person not be moved by his teaching to believe? Have you ever wondered how you would have responded to Jesus in the first century if you were actually in his presence? If you saw him with your own eyes, if you heard his voice, with your own ears, if you experienced his miraculous power, have you ever wondered how you would respond to him? I want to ask you a question. How many of you were in the Pacific Northwest on May 18, 1980? Ah, so many of you know. Do you know what happened on that date? Mount St. Helens exploded. That's the day the, the mountain erupted. I was in college at that time in Bozeman, Montana, and I remember looking out the window and seeing what I thought looked like everything being covered with snow. And I remember thinking, oh, that's strange. It's a warm spring day in Bozeman, Montana, and here snow has fallen. And of course, it wasn't snow, right? It was ash from the mountain that had blown up over 700 miles away. But for many people who lived closer to the mountain, maybe you are one of one who lived close to the mountain, people thought that a nuclear bomb had gone off. The foundations of their homes were, were so deeply shaken. It was so loud. People were terrified, not knowing what had happened. But it's interesting that there were a number of people who lived just within a few miles of the mountain who testified that they actually didn't hear anything. They heard nothing. Even as the sky darkened overhead, they thought it was just a rain cloud passing over. How could that be? How could someone be so close to something so powerful and not perceive it? Well, scientists explained that actually these people who were closest to the explosion were in what's called a a zone of silence. That the incredible upward thrust of the exploding mountain also sent the sound upward into the atmosphere where then it bounced down in intervals outward and away from ground zero. So amazingly, people who were right next to the mountain in the shadow side of the volcano, really the people that were closest to the Spirit Lake area, they wouldn't have known what happened unless they were looking directly at the mountain when it exploded. Do you know that it's possible to be in the presence of Jesus and not hear the good news of the gospel? Seeing doesn't assure believing. Hearing doesn't necessarily equate with understanding because the problem is not with the eyes or the ears of the listener. The problem resides in the heart. It's with our hearts that we perceive God, and it's with his Holy Spirit that we receive understanding. And Jesus explains this in a prophecy that was actually first written in Isaiah, as he goes on in the chapter in verse 14. He says, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and in turn, I would heal them. So why does Jesus speak in parables? He speaks in parables so that those who have hearts eager to perceive truth and have understanding about the kingdom of God will receive it. And those whose hearts are calloused Will remain blind and deaf to the mysteries. Look back at verse 12 for just a second. Verse 12, Jesus said, Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. So, what can we have? How do we have truth? How can we understand the kingdom of God in the way that Jesus reveals through these parables? And that actually takes us to our second question. How can the listener, how can you and I prepare our hearts for understanding about the kingdom of God? We know that the disciples whom Jesus was speaking to, they were so eager to know. They wanted to know. They wanted to understand Jesus' teaching. They believed that he was the son of God. And this truth that he was giving them was literally transforming their lives. They were so blessed by God's grace, to learn actually more about the mysteries and the secrets of the kingdom than even the Old Testament saints and prophets had had known. Jesus says in verse 16, But blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. When the Bible talks about a secret or a mystery... It's referring to something that was previously hidden in the Old Testament, but is now made known in the New Testament. For example, the, the, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke of the coming Messiah. They, they know, knew that he would come into the world and that he would conquer, but they didn't know when he would come. They didn't know how he would come. That was a mystery. But in the New Testament, this mystery is revealed as Jesus Christ comes into the world and he conquers through his sacrificial death on a cross. And this kingdom was completely upside down from their expectations. So the parables help to bring clarity to their confusion. In fact, the parables give the disciples even greater understanding than they would have received if Jesus would have just spoken to them in plain language because their hearts were teachable, and they were eager to apply everything they were learning. Jesus then goes on to explain to them the parable of the sower, one of the few parables that Jesus actually tells them what it means. And he tells them that in this parable, the sower is the son of God, Jesus Christ, the seed is the gospel message of salvation, and the soil is the human heart. So as he explains to them what this means, I want you to notice that there are actually four heart soils that he refers to. Look at verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Think with me for a moment. Is is this you or is this someone that you know? Because Jesus is describing the hard heart. This person's heart is hardened by sin This is a person who suppresses the truth of God that is made evident in the world, just like Paul explains in Romans chapter 1. This is a person who willfully stays in a place of spiritual darkness, spiraling so deep into sin as their life progresses that eventually they call good evil and they call evil good. Jesus says that Satan is actually actively at work in this person's life to keep their ears closed and their eyes closed to the evidence of God. This person will not believe, no matter how many times the gospel is shared by friends or family. Jesus describes again another heart in verse 20. He said, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away. So this is a person with a shallow heart. At first, when they hear the gospel, they, they receive it with such great joy. But there's no root to their faith. It's only at the surface. And so when persecution comes, when the heat of persecution comes, then their, their faith is scorched. As we know, if you're a gardener, you know that the sunshine will actually kill a plant that doesn't have any root, and so for the person whose faith is, is not rootly, deeply rooted in the word, when the, the hard times come, when the heat of persecution comes, um, they, they wither. But for a person who is deeply rooted in, in the word, when, when persecution comes, they actually can grow deeper in their faith. They actually can flourish in hard times. So this shallow-hearted person has weak faith, has a minimal understanding of God, and has made an insincere decision to follow Jesus' Lordship. Now this raises the question, right? Can a person believe and be saved? Well, Satan and his followers fully believe in the reality of Jesus Christ, so much so that they tremble at the sound of his name but they don't follow his lordship. They're not submitted to him as king. He's not their king. You know, knowing, giving intellectual assent to the reality of Jesus Christ is not the same as belonging to his kingdom, as being under his rule, as being one of his people, of having the Holy Spirit dwelling in your, spirit, in your soul. It's different. Jesus goes on and and says in verse 22, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So this is the strangled heart. This person's faith is actually choked out by the stresses, the strains and the stuff of life. Now notice it's a gradual process. The imagery here is of the thistles growing up among the flowers and they struggle together for a while, for space, for sunshine, for water, just in the same way that a person can hold worldliness in tandem with faith for a while. But eventually the thistles will overcome the flowers and the flowers will die out. I think this is what we're seeing a lot in our worlds today as people are deconstructing their faith. Some people have simply grown fatigued of trying to hold their worldliness in tandem with their faith, and they've just simply decided to, to disconnect from their faith altogether. Over COVID, so many people just just dropped their church communities. They just walked away and decided they didn't need it anymore. They stopped persevering in their walk with Jesus. For this person's heart, ultimately, the problems and the possessions of a person's life will actually strangle their, their heart, will actually choke out their spiritual vitality. Do you know someone who has a strangled heart? Verse 23, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This is the open heart. This is the heart of the disciples. This person is is eager and ready to receive the seeds of the gospel into a heart that is well-fertilized, watered, well-tilled, where it's going to produce an abundant harvest. This person cultivates a life of abiding in Jesus. This person's eager to know him, eager to learn from him, to trust him, to be faithful in the hard times. This person so fully loves God— and loves others, that they are not only does the word of God flourish in their own hearts, but they're the ones, like Miriam, who wants to bring the word to others, who wants to go out in the world and share the word of God with others. This is the person, this is the person who inherits the kingdom of God. This is the person who belongs to God's kingdom, who is one of God's people. This is the person who is the temple of the Holy Spirit on earth because the Holy Spirit dwells within them. They are literally God's place on earth. And this is the person who trusts in God's rulership, who worships him as king. So is this you? Do you have an open heart? Would you describe this kind of heart as being the condition of your heart? Which of these soils actually accurately describes your heart You can be honest because you're not stuck. Soil can be cultivated. Rocks can be removed. Thistles can be ripped out. Your soil of your heart can be tilled and watered and fertilized. It can be made ready for the seeds of the gospel. So it's not a moment of saying, oh darn, I'm stuck like this. It's It's a moment to examine your own heart and say, what is the condition of my heart? What is my receptivity to God? We need the Lord to open the eyes of our heart so we can receive understanding from him. Would you like to have a heart that is ready to respond to God and to literally flourish when the seeds of the gospel are planted in the soil of your heart? Well, Jesus knows that if we want to understand the secrets about the kingdom, we have to have hearts that are open and ready to listen and respond. So in verses 31 through 34, Jesus tells us another parable about the kingdom. And this is where we find the answer to question number three. What kingdom power was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming? Look at verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So together, these two parables communicate that the outwardly small and seemingly insignificant beginning of the kingdom's presence on earth, which was inaugurated at Jesus's first coming, will actually lead to a glorious and extravagant culmination at his second coming. Imagine, if you will, how small the ushering of the kingdom must have felt to the disciples. Remember, they were expecting their Messiah to come with pomp and circumstance. Everyone in that, in that time was expecting him to reign, to free them from Roman oppression, to, to meet their deepest needs, to heal, to do miracles, to usher the kingdom of God in a big way that would have changed everything in their present moment. So Jesus compares the start of the kingdom to this tiny little mustard seed. The mustard seed is, is not actually the smallest seed known to man, but it was the smallest seed known to farmers in that day and time. It's the smallest seed that was planted in the first century. And when it was sprinkled on fertile soil, it could grow to be the largest plant in the garden. It could form a tree that was 12 to 15 feet tall. So Jesus is revealing that outwardly the kingdom is going to start with a something that looks like this very small little seed, but it's going to grow strong and powerful over time. Isn't that exactly what happened when the kingdom came to earth in the birth of Jesus? Jesus was born to a, bir- a virgin, he was a babe, his ushering into this world was a babe in a manger born to teenage parents who were underprivileged. He was the son of a carpenter living in some remote place out in the sticks in one of the smallest nations in the world. He only lived 33 years on the earth, only had three years of earthly ministry. Through a circumstantial lens, the start of the kingdom does, in fact, look like the tiniest little mustard seed. But of course, Jesus wasn't like any other man. He is and was the unique son of God. He was equal to God in power, and that power became evident through his death, resurrection, and ascension. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, literally changed the world, literally divided time, has circulated all over the globe, has marked history forever. In fact, for 2,000 years, the mission of the kingdom has been just expanding. The word of God has been translated into over 1,200 languages. Church communities have erupted all over every continent on the planet. It's too many to count. People have given their hearts to faith in Christ and been thoroughly transformed by this good news. And those who have come to faith across the span of time and space are like the birds who've come to perch in the mustard tree, the kingdom of God. And Jesus also explains that like a small portion of yeast that inwardly permeates flour and transforms the ingredients of bread, the invisible kingdom of God permeates every facet of our lives. It just takes a small granule of yeast to change the dough in the same way it just takes a small granule of faith of God's word to change our hearts. No, when the word of God comes into our hearts, it transforms how we think, transforms our perspective about life. It transforms what we believe. It transforms what we do. The smallest particle of revelation from God changes everything about who we are. It changes the whole trajectory of our lives. So Jesus's point is that the coming of the kingdom may look small and invisible on the outside, but it will be powerfully transformative on the inside, not only in the lives of individuals, but also in in the lives of people in every nation around the globe. Do you know, in fact, that the seed of the gospel had traveled within the first hundred years, had traveled halfway across the world by the faithfulness of those disciples when they received the great commission to go and to share who people shared and shared and shared, and it traveled halfway around the world just within the first hundred years without the internet. Word of mouth, people telling stories, people sharing how their lives have been transformed, people talking about their experiences knowing Jesus. And then in the next two parables, Jesus reveals how we should value the kingdom as the greatest prize. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So both of these parables describe the impact of the kingdom on our lives. Now, it probably sounds strange to us to think about a treasure being buried in a field, but in that day, there were no banks. There was no safe deposit box. If you had something of great value, you would hide it in some remote place where nobody could find it. And so here comes this man who finds this hidden treasure, something that had been buried and forgotten, and he was so overjoyed at his discovery that literally he went and sold everything he owned to buy the entire field. He, in other words, he valued this treasure so much that he was willing to sell all of his worldly possessions to have it. And the parable of the pearl makes the same point, except that this man actually had been searching for, pe- per- for pearls. And what he found was beyond his wild imagination. It was so much more than he was expecting. And so he too is willing, goes out and sells everything he owns in order to have this one pearl. Pearl. So Jesus's point is that the kingdom of God is so wonderful. It's so valuable. It's so far beyond anything you can think or imagine that it's worth losing every earthly temporal possession in order to obtain it. There is nothing on earth that is better than being a part of God's kingdom. Nothing. Paul testified to this in Philippians 3:8 when he said, he said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When the disciples followed Jesus' commission to go out in the world and share the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When they took on that mantle of sharing the gospel around the world, most of them were killed because of it. They literally gave up their very lives for the sake of the gospel. So what does the Son of Man say about the kingdom of God? Jesus reveals clearly that the kingdom was inaugurated when he was born into this world. It came. It came through his birth into this world. And though it started small and was largely invisible in the first century, it's been expanding around the globe and transforming lives for over 2,000 years. And one day, the kingdom will be consummated when Jesus returns in glory. The Bible tells us that when Jesus comes, he'll descend from heaven with the sound of the trumpet of God, with the voice of archangels. The Bible tells us that he'll come in the clouds and every eye around the globe will see him. Every eye will see him. Even those who have suppressed the truth of him, even those who have denied the Holy Spirit, they will see him when he comes in glory from the clouds. And when he appears in glory, every person will know that he is God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But on that day, the soil of our hearts will also be revealed. The authenticity of our faith will be made known. The true treasure of our hearts will be exposed. And it will be a day of reckoning for those who are not his people. Not under his reign. Not in his place. So it's no wonder that, that Jesus spoke so much about the kingdom of God. It's no wonder that he used parables to illuminate truth for those who had hearts that were open for understanding. And as we go to the table in just a moment, I want to ask you, honestly, if you'll just contemplate the soil of your own heart this morning as you, as you hold the elements in your hand, as you, as you remember the death, the resurrection, the power of Jesus— I want to ask you to to just ask yourself these, these two questions. What is the condition of your heart? If you need help knowing that, ask the Lord, show me the condition of my heart, just be honest. And then I want to ask you to contemplate how precious is the kingdom of God to you? Is there something that you actually are willing to let go of in order to fully embrace God's kingdom in your life? Hold the elements, think about those two things. Colin and the band, the worship band, will lead us in worship. And then take the elements when your heart is ready. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful that you tell us some things so that we can understand. And I'm so grateful for where we live in history, that we can look back 2,000 years and see how indeed your kingdom, which started so small, so invisible, is truly powerful and mighty right here in this generation. We have 2,000 years of witnesses who have experienced life transformation because of the gospel. But I also wanna say thank you that you just don't tell us things that are true about your kingdom, but you speak right to our hearts because what you care about more than anything is not what we know, but how we respond to your word. Lord, we wanna be people who have open hearts We want to be people who attune our hearts to you so that we can discern and perceive your spirit at work. And we want to be people truly who don't hold on to the things of this world as more precious than being a part of your kingdom work. So Lord, would you show us how we can partner with you, how we can respond to this word that you've given us today about your kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.